Amen, thank you. Hi. It's been uh, about seven months since I stood here, I think. So just to say it again, although I've said it loads of times, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I had a great party and everything when I retired. And I've got all the letters and cards that you sent. And, you know, just really means a lot, all the lovely things people said. So, again, thank you. Uh, now, this week, somewhere in, squeezed in between Brexit and Chilcot, Chilcot, whatever it is, um, something got squeezed into the news uh, that might have got more coverage any other time. It said on the BBC, after an almost five-year journey to the solar system's largest planet, NASA's Juno spacecraft successfully entered Jupiter's orbit. Uh, and apparently, you knew this, I'm sure, uh, when Earth is at its closest, it's 365 million miles away, and at its furthest, it's over 600 million miles away. That's a long way to send a probe and get it there accurately, isn't it? And it kind of raised all kinds of questions in my mind. You know, you just go off on one thinking. And I remembered reading the story of Vanya, who was um, a Moldavian, and he was, uh, he was murdered in the Russian army for his faith in 1972. And he suffered terrible persecution. And uh, the Lord gave him exceptional visions to sustain him during that time. And just a week before he died, he wrote to his brother, pleading with his brother to believe in God. And he said, I've seen it all. He said, I've flown with angels to other planets. And I thought... This all set me off thinking about that. You know, you start asking these imponderable questions, don't you? Like, where's heaven? And is it, you know, further than Jupiter? And all that kind of questions. And, you know, but if you're sceptical, bear in mind that man, that young man laid down his life for this testimony. But anyway, I'm thinking about all these things. And then I read on that morning, somebody said how the longest journey that man is called to make is the journey into his own soul. We can get a probe to Jupiter, but it seems more difficult to travel to the place within ourselves where God resides. Now, I want to look at two key scriptures this morning. You needn't look them up because they're coming up on the screen and they're going to stay on the screen. The first one is from John 14. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. That's a mystery as well. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And this has really been what God has been saying to me, in one way or another, for about the past six months now. Um, God in me, or as Paul put it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. A second key scripture is from Colossians 1. The commission God gave me is to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So to know God, there is an inner journey that we're called to take, apparently more difficult than getting a probe to Jupiter. And this inner journey has become, for me, a better definition of discipleship than any training program, any code of behavior. Jesus has called us to make disciples, but he's a disciple, someone who makes the inner journey, who abides and remains in him, who walks with him, communicates with him is strengthened in his or her inner being as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Jesus called this life in fact it's his definition of life. He said because I live you also will live. On that day you'll realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Now there's a prayer that I love written by Oswald Chambers and I've quoted it before. He said, the great mystical word of work of the Holy Spirit is in the dim regions of our personality that we can't get to. Psalm 139 says, he is the God of the early mornings, the late nights, the mountain peaks, the sea. But my God, my soul has further horizons than the early mornings, deeper darkness than the nights of earth, higher peaks than any mountain peaks, greater depths than any sea in nature. I cannot reach to the height or the depths. There are motives I cannot trace, dreams I cannot get at. My God, search me out. This sums up what God has been saying to me all of this year. One way or another, it's been all about the inner journey. Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I think we all know that in the Old Testament, there was a temple, the supposed dwelling place of God. But the cross, you know, that cosmic, earth-shattering explosion changed everything. And the new temple is the human person, God in us. And Paul teaches this over and over again, that the cross changed everything. And yet sometimes we speak as though it didn't. When I think about some of the stuff we've said in the past, it can sound so spiritual to say things like, Oh, we're missing it. We're nothing like the church of the New Testament. We mustn't settle for less. We've got to reach out. There's more. There should be a holy discontent. And all this sounds like the yearning of a deeply spiritual man or woman. And people who recognize their own longing for an authentic experience get excited about this. Because it is true that we're not in revival. So this implies reaching out, straining for something, revival being just around the corner, but tantalizingly out of reach. It implies that God is just out of reach. Well, what does that say about the cross? This is what the Bible says in Romans 10. The righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend in the, into the deep to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. How often have we said things like, God is so close and he's reaching out to you. And if you just reach out to him, and it sounds so right, but I think it's so wrong. 
It actually reminds me of us teaching our little Teddy to walk, you know. We stand a little bit away from him and we hold a toy and he takes a step. So then we stand back a little bit more to get him to take another step. And you know what? I've heard entire sermons preached on this, that God stands back out of reach because he's calling us to come to him. All I know that this is not what the Holy Spirit is saying to me at this moment in time. He's saying that I have God in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All this reminds me of a quote from Shadowland, you know, the film about C.S. Lewis. And he's telling his wife that he's no longer discontent. He's no longer, as they say, looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And he says, I don't want to be somewhere else anymore. I'm not waiting for anything new to happen. I'm not looking around the next corner, not the next hill. Here, now, it's enough. Now that sounds like a funny thing to say in a world that's tearing itself apart and in a church that actually needs a lot of new things to happen. And we do, we need some miracles. But the realisation that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, doesn't negate any of that. Indeed, it's possibly the key to living in the waiting. Perhaps it's the key to peace in the storm. I wonder if we learn to take the inner journey and we make disciples who take the inner journey, we might find ourselves being used more effectively by God. A simple search tells me that the words Christ in you occur 134 times in the New Testament. And I'm beginning to realise that when we focus on this inner journey, it can transform our lives. But I resisted it a bit. Because I'm a bit suspicious of anything that focuses on me and looking at myself and I was reading some stuff about the real me and I was thinking, well, I don't want to find me, I want to find God. But it eventually dawned on me that what the book was about was that God, Christ in you, communes with the real me, possibly not the persona that I show to the world. Now, that's a big subject, and I'm not tackling it today. But the truth is we're all under pressure to be somebody, to show the world an acceptable face. And the pressure might come from other people or from within ourselves. Possibly we adopt a persona in order to belong or in order to prove ourselves or worse, in order to hide ourselves. And I learned that seeking God on the inside means facing this and being absolutely true to yourself. That's not always easy. Dropping any false persona. God is absolute truth and he communes with the real you, not the face you show to the world. But don't beat yourself up if you've lost touch of the real you because you might need to ask God to show you who that is. You might need to think about the pressures uh, on you to live up to the expectations of people around you, perhaps especially in church. The Christian life is so opposite to everything that the world has ever taught us. One writer said, we love and worship somebody we can't physically see. We expect to go to heaven based on the merits of another person. We have to empty ourselves to be full, humble ourselves to be exalted, admit we're wrong to be declared right. We're strong when we're weak, rich when we're poor. We give away in order to keep and we die in order to live. 
Now, in a world that constantly tells us the very opposite to all of that, we do have to kind of defy our natural instincts. Just as what we have to do the very opposite of what's deemed natural in the world. So there is a constant battle to stay true to yourself, given the pressure you're under to conform one way or another. It's counterintuitive not to strive, not to try and earn God's favour, to be free, to be yourself, to receive his love, to accept the free gift of his grace, to acknowledge his presence even though we know we're not good enough. All this goes against everything you were ever taught in this world. But remember, 134 times in the New Testament it says, Christ in you. And this is your Sabbath rest. So if you don't take anything else in today, just go home with the assurance that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, over the years, I've developed good disciplines to help me to find God. Prayer, the word of God, fellowship with other Christians and so on. And I still need those disciplines. They're good disciplines. But it's also necessary to rest in him. Not to strive and not to think. We've got to have all the answers. If we go back to our second key scripture, Colossians 1, it says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, everything about Jesus is mysterious. The incarnation, God becoming man, is a mystery. The cross, God entering into our pain. Furthermore, God paying the price to God for our sin and setting people free from the grave. The resurrection is a mystery. You know, don't you think about things like what did he look like when he was raised and things like that. The ascension, where did he go? Was it past Jupiter? And I love that about God. I like the mystery that we haven't got all the answers off Pat. But perhaps this is the greatest mystery of all, Christ in you, Christ in me. You see, we find it so easy to fall back on doctrines that are very easy to explain. We like to think, well, truth is black and white. We can explain the universe all as if we admit that we don't know everything, then there's something wrong with our faith. But Christ in you is a mystery. There's an old song that sums it up. It says, you ask me how I know he lives. How do I know? He lives within my heart. There is more than knowing the answers. There's the mysterious anointing, the presence, experienced but impossible to define. Somebody asked me this week what I want for our church. And I think it came down to that, the anointing, the presence. Jesus has given us himself. He's given us gifts, yes. He's given us wisdom and revelation, yes. But so much more than that, he's given us himself. And actually, this is his definition of life. He said it in John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But I wonder if there's anybody here, and maybe you feel empty of that presence You know that he is your life source. You know that apart from him, you can do nothing. You know that without his presence, you lack security and self-worth, but you can't connect. It's possible to feel physically and mentally strong, but physically weak, uh, spiritually weak. 
And you know, I've always had the answer to this. Oh, yeah, God's word, definitely. The word that, as they say, reaches deeper than our consciousness, that makes me strong in my inner being. A good diet of God's word has always been my spiritual strength. But even that somehow depended on me and my disciplines. You know, there came a day when I wanted a higher assurance. There are people I know who at this moment in time cannot exercise spiritual disciplines right now for one reason or another. And after all, what if I can't access the word? I thought, what if my spiritual disciplines are no longer possible? Perhaps when I'm old and frail, what if I lose the power to recall what I know? What about when it simply can't depend on me to get to God? Jesus said, on that day you will realize you will just know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. You know what God said to me, and I wrote it down in January this year. God said to me, I don't play hard to get. I'm not waiting for you to find me. I'm here now. On that day, it says, this is the day today, he says. And of course, the scriptures back this up. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that word hope means certainty. Christ in you, the certainty of glory. Doesn't God say that we have everything we need for life and godliness? Why is it apparently so spiritual to say we haven't got it, there ought to be more? Why should we be constantly dissatisfied? Why not take that inner journey, being absolutely yourself with God and meet him in your own soul? You know, the very thing that Jesus hated about organized religion was that it increased the distance between God and man. And he came to do the very opposite, to close the gap. And in doing so, he was responding to our deepest need, which is to overcome the separateness from a God who seems to be over there, beyond us, just out of reach. I still need to pray and read my Bible, but knowing that I have Christ in me changes everything about that. You know, intercession becomes not just me asking for things, but it's in alignment of my will with his will as the Spirit begins to pray through me. You know, it's not me identifying with somebody's needs, although I do, and I may weep for them, but it's more than that. It's his Spirit praying through me and, find, and showing me what his will is in the situation. He looks out at the world from within us, you might say, and he speaks out of us his word and his intention. I think the only way I can explain this is to give an example. And to finish, I just want to take the example of Psalm 23, which we all know really well, and show how we read the scripture differently from this perspective, this assurance of Christ within us. We know that David wrote the psalm, don't we? And David wasn't an ordinary person like me. He was an extraordinary man. He was the man after God's own heart. He was the chosen, anointed king of Israel. He was the one whose descendant would be the son of God. And his throne would be an eternal throne. And Psalm 23 is David's testimony. 
Now, you might only feel it's yours on occasions, perhaps in a moment of joy or comfort or grief. You own it. It becomes your psalm, your testimony. Or your faith is really strong and you do know that the same spirit dwells in you as David and you appropriate the psalm as your own experience. But there's still another level. When we read the scriptures, when God within us speaks, when we read it through his eyes, when we speak with his voice and when it reveals his plans and his power. We all know how the psalm begins with, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd. And you might know the famous story of a little boy who died on the Welsh mountains and he couldn't read or write, but he'd been taught to recite this. And he was taught to hold on to each one of the fingers of his hands. The Lord is my shepherd. And um, it had been explained to him that when he held on to the ring finger and he emphasised the word my, it was to remind him that God loves him personally, just as a wedding ring is a, a symbol of personal, exclusive love. He was taught that God loved him. The psalm was meant for him. And when they found his body, he was holding on to the ring finger of his left hand. This is a true story. But what interests me about the story is not that the little boy was exercising faith, although he was, and that's good. But where was God? Because I'm thinking this was a tragedy, a child died, and if the spirit was in him, what was he doing? What was he saying to the boy? I want to hear the story from God's point of view. I want to pick up on what God is saying and doing as I read the story. I want Christ in me to be reading it and revealing what was going on. But I had to get further down in the psalm and to see how differently Christ who is in me looks out on the world. You see, just to park that for a moment, the greatest hindrance to faith is why does God allow suffering? How can you convince anybody to believe in God when such terrible things are happening in Iraq and Syria? The appalling suffering and the injustice and the despair of these poor people just causes me to cry out, where are you, Lord? What are you doing? And I get to verse 5 in Psalm 23 and it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now that verse spoke to me before. At a time when I was personally under attack and God said, the enemy knows very well everything I've got prepared for you. And you know, you might have a personal enemy, maybe a spirit of fear or whatever the demon is that torments you. Bear in mind that he can see everything that is being prepared for you. But this time, as I read these words, the lion roared. It was no longer David's testimony and it wasn't my testimony. It was the word of the Lord. And it took me way beyond searching for my personal relationship with Jesus. I saw him and heard him as somebody much greater 
than just my personal saviour. He's the cosmic king. He was present at creation. In him all things live and move and have their being. All things were created through him and for him. He has the supremacy in heaven and earth. He's the heir of all things. He sustains all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That means there's nothing outside of him. If he's the first and last, the beginning and the end, nothing is outside of him. And as I wept for the children of Syria, and I do, I saw, or rather he saw because he is in me, not that the devil is laughing and mocking, but that the devil is angry because he knows his time is short. He's unleashing hatred and murder because he's so angry. And do you know why he's angry? Because what is being prepared is being prepared in front of his very eyes. The king is preparing his table his kingdom, his bride. He's preparing to restore the creation and he's preparing it in the presence of the enemy and it's making Satan furious. I hear the news from Iraq and I weep and Jesus weeps. Of course he does. He's acquainted with grief. It's not okay what's happening in the world but not for one moment does he despair. And with Christ in me, I do not despair because he is building his kingdom. Creation groans, but Romans 8 said our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I weep. I can't bear it. But Christ in me knows what he's doing and he will have the last word. And with Christ in you, you see the world differently. You read the Bible differently. You pray differently from this perspective of knowing that you have Christ in you, the certainty of glory. I pray that he'll help us to take this inner journey, that we'll meet him on the inside and abide with him and may he speak out of us and may he show us his perspective as he looks out at the world from within us. Let's pray. Father God, help us to take the inner journey. Your word in Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? From your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. In the depths, you're there. On the wings of the dawn, on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, as I pray, just make this your prayer. My God, my soul has further horizons than the early mornings, deeper darkness than the nights of earth, higher peaks than any mountain peaks, greater depths than any sea in nature. Thou who art the God of all these, be my God. I cannot reach to the heights or the depths. There are motives I cannot trace, dreams I cannot get to. My God, search me out. Lord, I pray for everyone here every man, woman and child in this church to be strengthened in their inner being, to be set free, to be true to themselves, to enter the Sabbath rest, to commune with you, to look out on the world through your eyes, to be delivered from striving, to live abundantly. We claim your promise, Lord. You said that rivers of living water would flow from within us. 
May our faith be so much more than doctrines or a code of behavior. Lord, we want to know you. And we want to make disciples who know you. We pray in the name of the King of Kings. He is the God of heaven, but he lives in me. He is my gentle saviour and my closest friend, but he is also the strong deliverer, the beginning and the end, and we will praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?